Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Canis Tracy. Hello, everybody. This is episode 19, and we are interviewing the historian from the 1st Brigade Band, Mr. Edward Pierce. As you'll find out in this episode, and as you may already know, the 1st Brigade Band was a band that existed in the 19th century, uh, started before the Civil War, was active two separate times throughout the Civil War, and then kind of existed until around World War II, and then was reactivated in 1964 and is regarded as being the first uh, Civil War reenactment band in the country. So the first Brigade Band was first on the scene back in 1964. It was really cool getting to talk to Ed about the history from both time periods, both the 19th century and the 20th and now 21st century. So Exactly, yeah, and Ed is such a student of history and that really came across uh when we were talking to him uh he knew something about everything that we asked and then was able to throw in a bunch of other stories too so um not everything from the interview always makes it into the episode so if you want to hear everything close to everything that we talk about uh give us a subscribe over on youtube that would really help us out we're also on other uh social media platforms so facebook twitter instagram uh, just search the Early American Brass Band Podcast, give us a like, and off you go. You're up and running with all things Early American Brass Bands. So here is our interview with Mr. Edward Pierce. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Ed Pierce, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your your expertise and your your knowledge with us. So thank you. Delighted to be here. I recently acquired all 15 of the First Brigade Band CDs, and I was kind of going through them, and I saw on a lot of them that you're listed as a producer, historian, musician, all all these kinds of things. So I was wondering, with the, the current First Brigade Band, do you play an instrument with the group as well, or are you firmly labeled as a historian for the group? I started out in the band in 1976 playing second B-flat cornet over the shoulder. Uh, it's evolved as I became more engaged with the organization. When our narrator left in 1981, uh, a gentleman by the name of Gordon Odegaard, when he left, I had filled in a couple of, on a couple of jobs where Gordy couldn't make it. He handed me a small stack of 3x5 cards and said, here, take over. Uh, being a lifelong Civil War buff, it, it, it wasn't hard, and spending my life, my professional life dealing with kids, uh, <laughs> hmm. talking to a crowd has been no problem, so uh, uh, I embraced it, and uh, I continued to play throughout the band in different sections. I went from B-flat to alto horn to um, B-flat bass to ultimately tuba. I've occasionally filled in on snare drum and bass Hello. drum. <laughs> um, about the only instrument I haven't filled in in the band is clarinet and piccolo. Oh, here you go. I was a trumpet major at Whitewater. That's where I got my music degree in 1971. Was that music education? Yes. Yeah. I got my degree in 1971. Uh, in the state of Wisconsin, um, DPI, uh, Department of Public Instruction, uh, you taught for four years, and then you uh, made application for your lifetime teaching license. I did that, uh, and I still have a copy of it lying around here someplace. <laughs> and I spent 
well, my entire professional life teaching elementary band, uh, mm-hmm. grades five through eight. What was the moment or, or what brought you into the world of the Civil War? What made you a Civil War buff? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's a can of worms. 19 <laughs> Christmas, this uh, young, excited fifth grader comes bounding down uh, to the Christmas tree, and lying under the Christmas tree is the Mark's blue and gray battle set, complete with cannons and mortars, Union and Confederate soldiers, a metal southern mansion <laughs> and it was it was awesome and uh what what do kids at that age do you call up your best friend and you say what did you get for christmas <laughs> i called up my best friend we had just we both had just joined band a year earlier our elementary school band mm-hmm. and um what'd you get for christmas oh i got this blue and gray set <laughs> i said let's put them together so two days after christmas uh, here are these two kids on the floor combining these battle sets, having absolutely no idea what a real Civil War battle was, uh, or how, you know, we, we were doing it like a World War II movie. Cause uh, yeah. that's, had to reference. Mm-hmm. Uh, having the time of our lives. And, uh, I, I think it was a couple months later, uh, uh, my buddy said, you know, don't you think we ought to figure out what we're doing here? And I said, that makes total sense. Uh, long story, hopefully not made longer, that that propelled me as a Civil War buff all the way through late elementary, high school, and, and college. Uh, I, I've always had the bite on Civil War, and um, uh, I bought albums when I was in high school in the 60s. I couldn't afford the Fennell albums because uh, they were expensive. Uh, they were in those box sets. The album that I did acquire... Uh, there were, were two expensive albums that were produced by, uh, uh, you know, the Columbia Legacy uh, series, mm-hmm. The Union? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that, that's what I bought into and, uh, getting, um, singers from the Met and, uh, Richard Bales did a wonderful job orchestrating that stuff. And then, uh, of course I had the, uh, uh, I think every Civil War buff had Tennessee Ernie Ford sings <laughs> songs of the North and songs of the South. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was is still a great fun album to listen to, just because I I always love and do love his voice mm-hmm. and uh, the Mormon Tabernacle uh, album songs of North and South. It's really interesting that through your toys you sought out more information to kind of you know learn more about the history after having the toys. Like I know I was playing with like star wars toys and hess trucks and dinosaurs all at the same time so that's <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that blue and gray toy set I, the last interview we did with garmin bowers um he mentioned the same exact toy set and that's kind of what got him into the civil war history as well yeah it was it was well done and there were other civil war toy sets and uh when when i came across them i said that's not just not as good uh <laughs> the detail that that went into that marks put into these play sets uh, was was uh, admirable indeed, but it was the spark and uh, the the friend that I got together with uh, just just to put a cap on this the friend that I got together with later became a lowlife. He uh, got his degree at Northwestern and became president of Adams College, and he got into the uh, Ulysses S. Grant Society, which has now been rolled into the Grant Presidential Library. And he nominated me to be a lifetime member uh, as part of the uh, U.S. Grant Presidential Library. So the two of us geezers go trundling off to uh, 
the meetings once a year and uh, uh, celebrating. Uh, he was a trombone player, and uh, I was a, at the time I was a drummer, and uh, celebrating a lifelong friendship. Yeah, well, that's awesome that it's been able to to come all the way back. You know, kind of a full circle thing for you guys. I was seeing with the like I mentioned before with the first brigade band that you're involved with the recording projects, you play in the band, you sing, narrate. Uh, as a historian, what type of uh, duties and, and jobs do you have for the band as the historian? What we try to do, uh, this was a conscious decision that we made oh, somewhere around 1981, 82. And the guy that ran with the ball with me was uh, Dan Wolbert. Dan mm -hmm. took over from Nick Contorno uh, at the end of 82. And uh, we were uh, rebuilding the collection of instruments. Fred Benkovic, uh, the founder of the band, uh, had control of a lot of the, the instruments, and he decided to go in a different direction from uh, the First Brigade Band, and so we were in the process of rebuilding. And we, we took the conscious decision to use music and story to make our performance compelling to an audience. We find quick steps interesting, but that's not going to send the crowd roaring to the record table with tears in their eyes. <laughs> and the the treasure trove was just too rich to ignore. So one of the first things I wrote for the band, we were on our way to a job, an annual job at Greenfield Village. Uh, there was an annual um, skirmish, not a battle reenactment, uh, uh, North-South Skirmish Association, you know, where they target shoot. Mm -hmm. rather than do field maneuvers. We had a series of concerts that we were to do on the weekend, and I wrote an outline for uh, based off of the Volume 3, Music for the President, and uh, told the story of music in the White House with President Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And since then, because we're way out here in, in the West, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys are all, you know, in the colonies, and... Um, so I've I've had to find ways to be creative and compelling to our Wisconsin audiences. So I've written what I call musical sequences, historical sequences, where we take the story and tie relevant music to it. Um, the story of Camp Randall, our principal training camp here in Wisconsin. Um, the story of the Iron Brigade, uh, a bandsman's day, uh, the charge of the first Minnesota at uh, Gettysburg on the second day. A profile of uh, Francis Maria Scala, um, Mr. Lincoln's tunesmith, I called it, uh, the music of George F. Root, um, the uh, bravest band, I called it, uh, the story of a band, a union band at Chancellorsville. Um, we call it, uh, the, the one that I put together is called Forgotten Foster, and um uh, then uh, I've had a uh, shorter sequence that I called out of that called Foster on Fire. <laughs> All of the uh, Foster tunes that we found in quick-step fashion, the uh, wonderful uh, uh, melodic things that he put together, and I called it uh, with tongue-in-cheek Foster on Fire. And when we conclude the sequence of Santa Ana's Retreat from Buena Vista, uh, I tell them you can tell Santa Ana was in a big hurry. Uh, <laughs> On the battlefield, classical music that was heard, uh, and in the field, uh, you have to hunt and peck through lots of lots of books to to find these little references, mm -hmm. uh, but they're out there. Uh, songs of worship, 
um, the, the common faith of the Civil War soldier, the, the faith of Abraham Lincoln, um, the story of the Iowa Graybeards, um, and that's these are just some of the sequences uh, over the years that I've written, and then uh, coming out of these uh, uh, sesquicentennials, uh, a profile of 1859, and then 61 through 65 each year successively. Here's you know, what we're going to we're going to be dealing with. That's the decision we've made, um, and we've stuck to it uh, all these years. Yeah. Are all those sequences and shows ones that the the band has ready to go kind of all the time, or are those things that have been retired or would need to be worked up again to, to get those types of performances together? We try and keep keep the, the sequences fresh. Uh, we don't like to uh, have anything sit more than, a, than two years in the book. Uh, because uh, of, of, I don't want to say limited scope, but it, it well, it is a, a limited scope for the musicians. So um, uh, we we rotate them, we've retired them, we've also pulled them back because it's relevant to the job. Yeah, and I'm sure keeping them kind of fresh every two years, you know, keeps the musicians a little more engaged as well. I think things can get a little stale, you know, if they sit for too <laughs> for too long. Um, Another question I had to maybe kind of wrap up the the section about your duties with uh, with the band. You're also listed as a producer and editor slash mixer for some of the albums. Do you have a background in audio engineering or how do you get involved with that side of things, too? It uh, I was originally on the record, what we called the record committee back in uh, 1978 when we were planning volume six. Uh, Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cheer Boys Cheer was uh, selected as the title uh, of the album, and, and we wanted to essentially create a, uh, a soldier and bandsman's uh, favorites. I just I just got into it. I have no no professional training uh, in uh, the audio arts. Uh, I was just there, and Ed, can you come in and listen? And you're a band director. Make suggestions. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's how I got roped into it. And later on, my wife, who's sitting here with me, uh, Nancy, uh, she got roped into it. And, uh, we all, uh, we've all had lots of time in the recording and mixing booth. Uh, when we started doing, recording the albums, uh, in the late sixties, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of John Stoll. John Stoll ran an, a little independent recording company. He would come in and record your local high school band for you. Uh, do your high school choir. Uh, John came in and basically sent, did, we did all of our albums with two mics up through volume eight. Volume eight, uh, we, was uh, released only on cassette originally. We, it was music that we, uh, had acquired, and there's another big long story here, uh, <laughs> from, uh, uh, North Carolina, uh, 26 North Carolina music. Uh, some of it we already had, some of it we didn't have, and uh, that was the last time we used the, the two-mic mix with John Stoll. After that, we found one of our members identified a recording studio that just happened to have a big enough room where we could stuff the band. And it was our first uh, attempt at multi-channel miking, and uh, that was Volume 9, the grand review and that was music uh all original uh all the stuff uh, on that album is strictly first brigade band 
And that's what we've done ever since. Until four years ago when we did the live recording from uh, the historic town square in Broadhead, Wisconsin, telling the story of the first brigade band. Ed, I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through a little bit the for our listeners that are listening now, the, the history that is the first brigade band in the 19th century. I, th- I think this band has to take that overworked word unique history uh that i i really can't i can't find another counterpart to i like to tell people that uh the first brigade band was there literally historically for everything you go back to 1857 uh, a small town like broadhead wisconsin that nobody ever heard of particularly in wisconsin (laughs) but the railroad had come through businesses were coming they had a hotel and the city fathers thought culture was important Let's start a band. They started what they called the Tin Band. Uh, I haven't been able to find out anything uh, from Broadhead Historical Society on. They're just uh, addressed in Kimberly's letters as a cheap set of tin instruments. I can well imagine what they were like. Uh, these guys were largely self-taught. 1858, they acquired a, a set of brass band instruments and had a bandwagon built. Uh, to convey the band, uh, and they had won a couple of local contests in Janesville and Beloit that year, early that year. Uh, they were invited to come to Freeport, Illinois, to provide music for a political gathering. Well, the gathering was the Lincoln-Douglas debate. Uh, the Freeport Doctrine, as we know it, uh, comes there. And uh, so the band is there to play for Lincoln and Douglas. And I like to say that's where the fuse was lit. You fast forward, um, you've already got two significant historical sets of ears that have heard this band. Um, now it's 1861, and the band uh, decides to enlist in uh, the war effort. They become uh, the third Wisconsin regimental band. Um, they go up to Fond du Lac for, for training. They're given a set of instruments from the state. They go off. Um, they miss Bull Run. They are at Camp Pinckney, Maryland, when Bull Run is being fought on July 21st, 1861. Lucky uh, uh Edwin Kimberly writes a song called Hamilton's Badger Boys. Uh, Charles Hamilton was their, was their commanding officer, uh, a rising star in the Badger State fir- a political firm of permanent, and um, greatly uh, loved, loved, admired, and respected by his men. Uh, Kimberly wrote this wonderful song. The band uh, later became a part of Nathaniel P. Banks' command. Banks moved into the Shenandoah and was hopelessly outclassed by Stonewall Jackson in, in uh, 1862, part of the Valley Campaign. And in the route that ensued, uh, the band lost all of their instruments in the skedaddle through the Shenandoah and across the Potomac. Uh, and they became a, a group without instruments for the balance of their one-year enlistment. They came home to Broadhead, sat out most of 1863, and realized this thing isn't going to end soon. Uh, and they felt compelled to go in once more. But they wanted to correct the mistakes uh, that were made uh, as a regiment band. They started out, first of all, they took their enlistment bounty money, and bounties were cash bounties were being offered uh, all across the Union at this time as enlistment inducements. But they took cash, and they went to D.C. Hall 
of Boston, Massachusetts. Many considered their, their instruments to be the finest at that time. Acquired a, a full set of over-the-shoulder instruments. Then they set about to create a, a repertoire book that could address from first-hand experience what came up in the field. Everything from uh, dance music to uh, funeral music, worship music, patriotic songs, uh, sentimental ballads. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful uh, cross-section of approximately 70 tunes. And then they wanted decent uniforms. They settled on a full frock coat. They went to uh, uh, a firm in Janesville, Wisconsin. Uh, all the guys were, were measured up for their uniforms. They had a fine set of uh, uniforms to go off to war with, a uh, frock coat, uh, a nice uh, uh, slouch hat, uh, a military-style vest. Uh, they, indeed, uh, they, they, they appeared very nicely as, as, a, as one observer called it, a band of gentlemen. They're, they took their first duty post in Huntsville, Alabama. They then moved off to uh, Chattanooga and uh, then joined General Sherman's army uh, that was on the move to capture Atlanta. Mm -hmm. They had a number of exploits along the way. The band was recognized quickly for its musical excellence by General Oliver Otis Howard, Howard, uh, the Christian general, uh, had the band as often as he could on Sundays uh, for services at his headquarters. The band, uh, on a whimsy one day, uh, they were at a supply landing on the Etowah River, and uh, a small federal gunboat was about to cast off and go take care of a, a pesky Confederate redoubt down the river that had just one or two cannon and uh, was interfering with, with uh, Sherman's supply route. So the band hopped on board, and the captain let them off just above the battery. And they snuck around, because it was very apparent there were no supporting troops around this battery. It was just a couple of guns and their gun crews. Um, and they went around behind the, the Confederate fort and blasted Yankee Doodle as fast and as loud as they could, and then hightailed it right away back and joined the, rejoined the gunboat. And uh, the shelling was over very shortly. Uh, the Confederates uh, abandoned their position, and uh, they shouted huzzah and returned in triumph that night. Uh, when when Atlanta fell, uh, the band was granted leave. They came home, reunited with loved ones. And then uh, after Christmas, 64, going into 65, uh, they rode the cars to New York City. Uh, Significantly at that time, a lot of the high, higher uh, command generals in, in the Army of the Potomac had also taken holiday leave and were in New York. Uh, and they played through Syracuse. It's bothered me endlessly trying to find which hotels uh, because uh, Kimberly and Spalding uh, referred to playing in several hotels and don't name them. Uh, we played for, uh, I don't have the notes in front of me, uh, so, several key uh, figures in leadership with the Army of the Potomac. Um, and uh, to, to great satisfaction, great applause, uh, took a steamer down to Savannah and um, rejoined Sherman's army just in time to participate in the march through the Carolinas. Uh, they were at the present at the burning of Columbia and uh, joined with several other bands as the, the flames hit their height and they all played um, the anvil chorus from Trovatore. 
And, uh, yeah, th- things were not, uh, uh, brothers and brothers clasping hands yet. And, uh, when, when that episode was finished, uh, they had missed the, the, the Battle of Fayetteville, the, the last fight that Joe Johnston put up, and, uh, were in the field, uh, uh, with Sherman when, uh, Johnston finally surrendered, uh, a couple of weeks after Lee. And uh, then they made the march north to the Grand Review. Uh, one of the things we're most proud of is uh, the letters written about the glowing uh, reviews that the band received during during the Grand Review, to quote, particularly on account of neatness of dress, brightness of instruments, and the fine music discourse. Uh, they were well satisfied with their service uh, for the Union uh, and the things that they got to participate in. Uh, so... Now you, you've got a trail that leads from the Lincoln-Douglas debates through the debacle, the early debacles in the East to the triumphs in the West, well, how the West came to the East militarily, and then culminating, uh, with, with the, uh, the Grand Review, which would have been satisfying for, for any music organization, but as Paul Harvey would have said, that's not the rest of the story. Um, the city of Galena was preparing a uh, uh, a triumph for the return of their favorite son, and uh, they wanted to secure the best band that they possibly could. And uh, several of the uh, veteran officers in Sherman's command said, "That that first brigade bunch uh, from Wisconsin are really good. Uh, we heard them at the Grand Review, or we heard them in the field. See if they." They're in Broadhead. See if you can get them. They got they got them. Kimberly was happy to bring the band to Galena. Uh, there was one problem. The bandwagon had fallen into disrepair uh, over the years that they were gone in military service and uh, was just not in shape. And the floorboards had rotted away and, and was pushed behind the, the blacksmith shop and forgotten while these guys were gone. No maintenance on it at all. So they... They went to nearby, they cast around, and anybody got a, a bandwagon that you're not using? And this, uh, the community of Schulzburg, Wisconsin, answered the call, and they sent their bandwagon over and painted on the side. It says, Band of Schulzburg. Uh, they didn't paint it over because they were borrowing the wagon. You <laughs> just do something like that. So they, they took that bandwagon to Galena. And they played for the gigantic reception for Grant, uh, for Sam and Julia. And, uh, it was, it was a triumph. It was really great. Uh, a, a real wonderful way to, to, to wrap up this, this amazing career. Um, and they were spoken of in glowing terms, uh, by the Gazette in, in Galena. Uh, goes to show you, uh, journalism at that time. The, the wonderful sounds of the band from Schulzburg was coming. Yeah, they should, I guess they should have painted over it then, huh? <laughs> I don't know. They 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 didn't want to mess with with their friends from Schulzburg, so uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's what they did. Uh, they went back to afterwards to to start uh, uh, a regular community band, and Kimberly writes about uh, how they would use some of the Civil War instruments to help younger people get ha- have an instrument to play to learn on. And like most ensembles, as as the instruments went from over the shoulder to bell front and bell up, um, they were, you know, 
happy to discard these old things, old things now, and uh, get into newer music, uh, get into newer instruments. But they ran for several decades, and it, it all finally petered out. Just prior to uh, World War II uh, in Chicago, uh, the books were pulled out one more time, the music books, and several of the instruments uh, were, were found and other instruments filled in. And they played um, in Chicago one more time. And then the music went into storage in, uh, into a private family and did not reemerge until that until uh, the books were turned over to Mills Music Library. I want to say it was 1980, um, and then the, the music was available for one and all. Uh, made application for the for the microfilm, and uh, that was uh, how then we we began to reconstruct. And uh, reconstruction we felt was was really important because, as you guys know. There are wrong notes. Uh, there are incorrect measures. Uh, we felt it was important to construct scores, to make the corrections, and and go through it. I'm curious. Throughout the the 19th century, throughout the the historical bands run, were they playing primarily as a brass band instrumentation, or were they mixed? Which I I'm pretty sure you guys are mixed now. So uh, how how did that work? We're mixed now because when Fred started the band uh, in 64, he, as you know, went to the Library of Congress and, and found those those books that had parts for piccolo, uh, parts for clarinet. Um, so that's what, when they were inventing the wheel, uh, that's what they went to. But uh, we still play with a piccolo, uh, and occasionally we, we do a clarinet, uh, I shouldn't say occasionally, and most of the time we're we're, we're using a. We have one clarinet player. She has both an E flat and a B flat uh, with her, and uh, we'll sometimes use piccolo and flute, and and we will carry uh, depending on on personnel availability uh, up to three woodwinds. But historically, uh, this was an all brass and percussion affair. Oh, okay, gotcha. So is the when the clarinet plays are they? playing designated clarinet parts or are they just doubling the cornet parts E flat and B flat? Uh I think they're 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 doubling most of the time off off of the cornet cornet gotcha. parts. Like I say, there are there are dedicated, as you guys know, there are dedicated woodwind parts in certain in certain books, but uh not mm-hmm. here. Not, not with per, with first brigade band. Gotcha. So then you were saying that the band kind of transitioned into a community band and then kinda died off for a little bit and then was reformed in 1964. Do you guys consider yourselves to be like a continuation of the historical band? Like, do you see yourselves as that same organization or is the band currently what, what we're calling a, a reenactment ensemble? I, I don't think the reenactment group is uh, defining what we are today. I think we're a logical growth extension of the original band. We've become an educational group. I don't know is that anybody ever got up uh, and and said a whole lot about the tune, the next tune that the band is going to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, that is absolutely an integral part uh, of our performances. Yeah. Uh, talk to the audience to explain and to to do deal with these deal with these stories that, mm-hmm. that for the next twenty minutes we're going to you know 
tell you the story of this, uh, and it's supported by music. We started out going to reenactments and skirmishes, but we've, we've pretty much gone away from that kind of thing. The last time we participated in a, in a major reenactment was in 2013. Uh, they took us out to, uh, they paid for us to come, uh, for the 150th of Chancellorsville. And uh, we participated with a military ball, uh, a pass and review, and concerts all up and down the reenactors camps. But uh, we've we're we're effective today on the concert stage, mm-hmm. and we will appear with Black Manhasset music stands. The sound system is is very very present. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no attempt to to hide music under a cake of gunpowder or something like that. Hmm. Uh, it's uh, uh, We're attired in reproduction uniforms, uh, but because of individual sensitivities, uh, they're not wool. They're a <laughs> substantially lighter fabric, but hmm. when you're seated in the audience, you don't know and you don't care. Yeah, they look hmm. right. They appear right. They are right. They're, we just don't go down... The, the footwear route or the period mouthpiece route. Uh, gotcha. and a conscious decision on our part, we felt that these instruments were beautifully done. Uh, they came up short on the mouthpieces. When you've got people that are coming in uh, as ringers um, from time to time, unless you've really rehearsed a whole lot with that period mouthpiece, um, that's just not going to work very well for that musician. Mm-hmm. And period mouthpieces seem to be a whole lot harder to to acquire. So very very long time before I showed up in the band, uh, back in the early days of the band, um, prior to my coming in 1976, they made that decision to use to use modern mouthpieces, and the result is uh, a, a much finer playing of of these these instruments just simply because that essential pieces, bringing it up to optimal performance. Mm-hmm. Does the band play on any reproduction horns, or are you guys purely on period instruments? Uh, period instruments, uh, the only thing that's reproduction are some drums. Uh, gotcha. All-weather all drums, uh, should the uh, uh, should the occasion arise, uh, if the weather is questionable, uh, uh, we do, we have always done parades. Parades pay well. <laughs> and uh, so we've we've got a set of those, um, but everything else is original. Gotcha. And I Very think good. approximately 280 instruments in the collection. Wow. Yeah. Do you know <laughs> Do you know how that kind of breaks down uh, in terms of like sopranos versus altos type of thing, or do you not have that type of information? Oh, let's see. We have 34 E flat cornets, uh, 36 B flat cornets. 27 alto horns, 20 B-flat tenors, uh, 22 B-flat bass horns, 24 E-flat tubas, 6 key bugles, oh, pardon me, 6, six bugles, 9 key bugles, um, brass, or key brass, pardon me, that includes uh, uh, ophoclides, uh, 19 clarinets, um, 16 flutes, 11 piccolos, and 32 fifes. Wow. Uh, we have 20 snare drums, 10 bass drums, and two sets of cymbals. Wow, that's incredible. Something that I think 
we also like to hear about amongst that awesome collection. Do you guys have any instruments that we would maybe consider to be, you know, particularly display worthy or notable or presentation horns or anything of that sort? Yeah, uh, there is a, uh, a cornet, um, an E flat cornet from the Red Hook Cornet Band. It's complete with a uh, the part book, the E flat book, uh, a pair of gloves, and a wonderful wooden case. We like to show it off as the the instrument that played for Lincoln and Douglas. We have an alto horn from the original Broadhead Brass Band that mm. played in Freeport. It's mm. an upright horn and. Uh, it's a beautiful player. We have an original uh, over-the-shoulder uh, B-flat bass from the original 1st Brigade band. It's inscribed, as all the instruments were from that collection, D.C. Hall, Boston, Massachusetts. We have uh, one that's a particular note. Uh, we call it the James Cornet. J.M. James uh, was in the 22nd Wisconsin. They were captured in Tennessee, the whole regiment. Um, in uh, March of 1863, uh, and James had this beautiful presentation uh, cornet, which happened to be a D.C. Hall also. And uh, to prevent this to going into a Confederate band, uh, the drummer in the band, uh, just prior to their surrender, very carefully broke the instrument into four pieces. Hmm. And they smuggled it, the pieces, under the uniforms. Wow. Which sort of tells you something about how they were really vetting prisoners as they were taking them off. <laughs> yeah. They were in Tennessee. They were they were just shoving these guys. Um, now James, well, uh, nearest I can tell, he's not a commissioned officer, but uh, he's listed as principal musician. He wound up in Libby Prison, and Libby Prison was uh, essentially an officer's prison in Richmond. Hmm. Uh, that's where they sent uh, all of the uh, commissioned officers that they captured in the Union Army. Uh, his time at Libby was mercifully short. Uh, he got out just a couple months later. Um, uh, let's see, in May, in May of '63. So the time that he spent in that hellhole was uh, mercifully short. Uh, came back and served served out the. Uh, his time as a principal musician uh, through, through the rest of the war. Uh, we have a, um, I always smile at this one. Uh, my, my elementary school for 10 years, uh, we took kids, we took our eighth grade class every year to Washington and to Gettysburg. And my administrator was a big Civil War buff. And he said, Ed, you're leaving the school band for a week. You're, you're coming with me. <laughs> <laughs> he put me in charge of the day and a half at Gettysburg. And it was just absolutely delightful to do for 10 years. And we, we had a one, wonderful, wonderful memories uh, of our time with the kids on the battlefield. Um, there was a drum that was captured um, by the 2nd Wisconsin on the first day. And as a lot of those drums were, it was painted Archer's Brigade, 5th Alabama, CSA, 1862. Hmm. And that drum wound up uh, in one of the, I think it's a Keith Rocco uh, painting on, on that day at, at Gettysburg. And the drum is lying on the ground in front of Confederates with their arms up in front of a phalanx of party hats and drawn bayonets. Yeah, well, that's cool that you guys have such a 
you know, amongst the the collection, you know, you're able to put stories to a number of the instruments too. You know, they're not just nameless uh, pieces of metal and wood, I guess, in the drums case. <laughs> but, yeah. So, but <laughs> the last thing I'll point out to you is is a drum from the 24th Wisconsin, and the 24th Wisconsin was the Milwaukee Regiment, and that was the command of Arthur MacArthur. That was the regiment that he led up Missionary Ridge and cried on Wisconsin. And uh, this, this drum was, was at uh, Chattanooga, and then it was at Franklin uh, also. So uh, it was uh, a real prize to get this trophy of Wisconsin history uh, in, into our collection. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Uh, I've seen in a number of places that the 1st Brigade Band, the current, you know, the, the modern 1st Brigade Band is often regarded as being the first reenacting brass band. I know we already kind of touched on, you know, quote unquote reenacting band, but I was wondering to to hear your your thoughts and, and opinions about the claim of the first brigade band being that first type of band. I think it's pretty solid. If nothing else the the, the discography uh can can tell you that. But when the Civil War I'm a child of the Civil War centennial, as we established earlier. Uh <laughs> And uh, while there was there was a great rush to to get muskets and uniforms and you know get into this whole thing, the the music, so, well, I think there was sort of a a feeling that well the music exists on these other LPs and then we've got the sound of the Fennell albums on the military bands and so the focus seemed to be on the, the skirmish target shooting, the battle reenactments, and uh, the preservation of historic sites. And uh, Fred Benkovic was a World War II veteran. He played in service bands during the Second World War. Uh, he was an avid Civil War buff, and he collected uh, military weapons and drums in the 1950s. Uh, he, he really wasn't particular about what he was collecting. He just wanted to get his private Civil War collection up. Uh, the story that I got from a couple of his friends was that as muskets became more expensive, uh, and sidearms became more expensive, uh, the instruments seemed to be relatively cheap. And he turned his attention to acquiring Civil War instruments. Where he got them, how he got them, Fred never left uh, a paper trail for us to to uh, follow his acquisitions. All we know is that he had the reputation. And in 1964, when the city of Galena was preparing to do this triumphal anniversary of Grant coming back to Galena. They wanted to do it in 1964 so that they could get the kinks worked out for the big uh, centennial in 65. And through the jungle drums, Fred was known as a collector with some Civil War instruments. He was contacted. Could you put something together? Fred was very active in the South Milwaukee band at that time. And uh, he got a, some of his buddies together out of the brass section, uh, went to the Library of Congress, got the things that he did, put together a group. Uh, at the time, they didn't know what the 1st Brigade Band looked like because the picture that's often um, the one of, of our band seated, uh, which we think was taken in Janesville. Some people think it was taken in Huntsville. I think it's Janesville personally, but neither here nor there. Um, went off with sack coats and this handful of music and went to Galena. Uh, it worked. Um and then they came back uh, to Galena uh, in 1965. And by then, word of mouth 
Uh, much like the original band, word of mouth had gotten around, hey, you guys have got Civil War music, that would be great for our parade, or that would be great to have as part of our concert series. Uh, and it began to evolve, and then the, the Civil War community got plugged into it, and there were invitations to the band. There were, uh, for a number of years, there was a, a powerful skirmish. I'll use the word skirmish to distinguish it from battle reenactment, because the skirmishers mm-hmm. are target shooters. Mm-hmm. Um, uniformed, authentic in their appearance, recreating their units, but uh, they're firing live rounds at targets for competition. Mm-hmm. Um, they went to a uh, skirmish uh, at Jefferson Barracks for a number of years in, uh, in St. Louis. Uh, skirmish that was held at Greenfield Village went on for years, and we were always a part of that up, in, up through 1986. Um, we would always go back to Galena every year to play for the Fall Historic Homes Tour. And we would barnstorm up and down the town, uh, go to a, go to the market square, form it into a circle of players and kick out tunes for a half an hour. Uh, then go up to the Grant Free War home and play for a while and go over to Grant's home across the river, uh, up on the hill and play there for a half an hour. Um, it, uh, Galena was very much a part of it. In 1970, 1975, we we got a call from Stones River Battlefield. Uh, they they wanted to recreate that, and we were the only kids on the block. Mm-hmm. So we uh, in December of '75 uh, went down there, and uh, the band played uh, divided up with that Confederate sack coats for half the guys, and played back and forth recreating that. When I joined the band in '76, uh, they were getting ready to go to Atlanta. The opportunity of, well, look, we're coming down to uh, Atlanta. We can stop at Stones River. And so they were able to get money from Stones River and Atlanta, enough to pay for the flight back. Uh, and that night we played by bonfire on the Stones River battlefield. And it, it was it was an amazing experience. Yeah, uh, wow. It had, had uh, golf ball size, golf ball size uh, goosebumps. Uh, and uh, the mayor of Atlanta presented Nick Contorno with a musician's sword oh, well. at that time, which was highly prized. Yeah. And um, I believe that sword is uh, at the hall, and uh, it's in a proper presentation place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the mayor said, yes, you may play Marching Through Georgia. Just don't say it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Avoid the words, for sure. Yeah, yeah but I, I guess... The, the reason why I asked the question is because I, I know that Frederick Fennell recorded that Eastman album in 1960 in preparation for the Civil War centennial. And then, you know, that, that album came out, or you know, the first volume came out in 1960 for the preparation of that. And then knowing that the first brigade band began in 1964, I've, I've always kind of been wondering that four year period, you know, basically the, the Civil War centennial. Assuming, I guess there was no really band music being performed at any of these centennial celebrations until the first brigade band, despite Fennell's album coming out in 1960. Yeah, you've got this dry desert period uh, that to us seems a little curious, but probably made sense at the time. Uh, and it sort of was a feeling of, well, mission accomplished, it's on disc, and now let's go, you know, do the the other stuff that we talked about earlier. And putting, as you guys know, you're, you're doing the legwork. Uh, it's, it's not as though you can order the band music, uh, get the instruments and, uh, let's set up shop in two weeks. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. right. A, a lot of a lot of grunt work, um, and uh, it it really takes a lot to get one going. It doesn't surprise me that uh, nothing was done, lacking lacking a compelling reason. I think Alina. Uh, Civil War music, a big kick in the butt that day when when mm-hmm. we contacted Fred, and that that got the ball rolling. Uh, I'm curious with the the current band now. Uh, how many how many members do you guys have in the the band as it stands? I would my my guess would be we're running a personnel roster of about fifty people. Uh, how many people normally go out for? A performance. We'll field a band of uh, thirty to forty people. Wow! Oh wow! And is the the first brigade band this brass band kind of the only ensemble under the umbrella of the first brigade band, or do you guys have different like configurations or different types of ensembles under the umbrella? Uh, we used to back in the the early seventies. The Fourth Continental Artillery Band of Music. Uh, was a, a subgroup. It was started by a gentleman by the name of Merlin Jones, uh, and they uh, played essentially contradance music from the Revolutionary War period. Oboes, bassoons, open natural horns, this mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never in my time with First Brigade really got to know their group. Merlin played E-flat cornet when he was with the First Brigade, but... Uh, I never really got to to know Merlin very well. The mm-hmm. last job of significance that they did was the Yorktown job in in 1981, and that's mm-hmm. where President Reagan showed up, and I, I think the Queen of England came came <laughs> over. Wow. Um, and uh, not bad. <laughs> last time they played, uh, and shortly thereafter it broke up. Uh, mm-hmm. They did one recording, I know, because I. I was given their reel-to-reel tapes at the at the time. I was the only guy in the outfit that had a reel-to-reel player. <laughs> I had to hand make uh, cassette tapes for sale for Yorktown for them. In terms of the repertoire that you guys are playing, do you guys stick primarily to authentic band arrangements, or do you guys kind of uh, make them your own when you perform them? That's a that that is a really good historical question. Uh, if you go to Harwell's uh, Richard Harwell had two books out on Confederate music. One is a textbook uh, on Confederate music. The other is a book of uh, reprinted Confederate uh, piano music. Hmm. And in, embedded in that is General Lee's Grand March. Mm-hmm. And there is a, uh, a telltale uh, artifact in the middle of the march, the original printing, it says, Put solo cornet here, which is huge, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you're not you're you're not in the era yet of of printing band arrangements. Just because if Scala tried to to sell his arrangements, there would have been no band in the country that could have played with nine clarinets. Yeah, yeah. So everybody was tailoring their stuff. So the piano, uh, the composers and the arrangers. And I've seen this in other examples as well. Put a solo instrument here. But the General Leap one, coming across that in 1980, was really compelling. I, I just remember stare, or the, when I turned the page in that book and staring at that thing for the longest time hmm. and realizing the implications of that. Hmm. Um, 
so that was the first. I, in fact, I went to Dan Wolpert, uh, and I said, Dan, what do you think? And he said, this is, um, this is the door opener. Because mm-hmm. it's here. Yeah. And, wow. uh, it's, it's, it's up to us to interpret it. And that, that first off piano reconstruction appeared on Dixie's Land, mm-hmm. uh, Volume 7, and General Lee's Grand March is there because of that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So that's in, that's in terms of, uh, what, what we call like orchestrating out the piano reductions for, for brass band again type yeah. of thing, right? Yeah. What about, um, it, I don't know, take like a, a 26 North Carolina piece or something. Do you guys play it, uh, as original or do you guys do your own arrangements based off of 26 arrangements? And worked with those, um, those reconstructions. Um, the, the music, we had had 26 North Carolina music very early on, but mm-hmm. we had, uh, we were only playing, um, what you would call the recognizable stuff. It, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't a, a repertoire of death, uh, of uh-huh. death, <laughs> death. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> only Webster's funeral march was. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, um, we obviously Dixie Bonnie Blue, um, uh, Lorena Quickstep, Wilderness Quickstep, you know, the, the recognizable, mm-hmm. what I'm calling the, the, the recognizable. Yeah, 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 of course. And, like uh, the pop stuff. Yeah. Pop stuff. And, uh, uh, the guy that really did serious work on the 11th North Carolina band music is a wonderful gentleman. Um, uh, I don't think he's with us anymore, but for about 15 years, uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful relationship and friendship, and life just took us away. There was no mm-hmm. falling doctor, but he got busy, I got busy, and we just never reconnected. Dr. Robert Downing of Fayetteville, North Carolina. He started the 11th North Carolina Band, and uh, he was also advertising in some of the Civil War magazines that he had four suites of Confederate band music from the 26th North Carolina. And, uh, he had them all handwritten, beautiful calligraphy. Uh, it, it's wonderful. Um, and he had that strictly for the instrumentation of the 26th, no percussion parts, and, uh, put them out for sale for anybody who wanted to buy them and, and play them. Uh, I contacted him by phone and we struck up a conversation uh push came to shove he invited me down to uh uh Fayetteville uh to play with the 11th North Carolina at a battle reenactment on a on a weekend in November and that's that was my first personal encounter with serious reenacting hmm. uh and it it was it was an amazing weekend um uh, when we finished the weekend he came to me kind of sheepishly he said Ed can 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 we get some of y'all Albums, you don't have anything to sell yet. I said, Robert, tell me what you want, how many you want, and I will personally deal with it Monday morning, and you will have albums to sell at your table until you get your your stuff airborne. It was wonderful camaraderie. Uh, it, it was good fellow, well met. And on that same weekend, I got a, I got the opportunity to meet another good friend, Dr. Clyde Noble of Athens, Georgia. Look, this is fellowship in music. Um, and uh, we had a great time. 
it was wonderful. In 1983, uh, we I, I feel this is significant. In 1983, we did what we call our Eastern Battlefield Tour. And our band manager at the time contacted Fredericksburg, Manassas, Gettysburg, and Harper's Ferry. And we arranged a whirlwind three-day tour. Um, at that point, nobody had played band instruments on these uh, at, at these historic sites yet. June into July of 1983, we started uh, at Chatham and Fredericksburg on the Union side um, on a Friday night, and then the next day, Saturday, we were playing outside the Visitor's Center at Manassas. We did an hour program, and then we're on the bus to Gettysburg. That night, uh, late late afternoon, it was late afternoon, we played a half-hour stand-up concert at a Union Army encampment outside of Gettysburg. And then that night, we did an hour-and-a-half program on music and Lincoln on the field at the junior high school at uh, Gettysburg. Uh yeah. After we played, they did a half-hour thing called the Pageant of the Soldier and brought soldiers out to demonstrate from the Continental Army all the way through the Second World War. Oh. Uh, next morning, we were out at uh, uh, the old visitor's center at Gettysburg, and we did uh, stand-up concerts. We drew such a crowd, our bandmaster forgot to watch time, and we were having a great time uh and realized we're running 45 minutes late. We've got to be at Antietam. Uh, we hopped on the bus. We told the bus driver, start burning it. we got to be there. Uh, we got pulled over for speeding. Yikes. <laughs> uh, the state of Maryland did not take a very positive view towards our, our hurrying to the battlefield. <laughs> uh, so we were sidetracked for a while, and uh, our advance team was, uh, I think, telling bad bad jokes uh, over the sound system trying to hold the crowd mm-hmm. at Antietam. Um, we did get an hour program in at Antietam, and uh, by this time, my voice was pretty much on on the uh, whereabouts of attire. Uh, <laughs> we'd been doing this for a long time, and the next stop was Harper's Ferry. Mm. It was by 5 o'clock in the afternoon, it was 95 plus, roaring hot. Ah. Yikes. Yeah. We're sitting there in the sun uh, along the banks of the river, uh, and everybody had been out tubing. So everybody was was in the audience was in swimsuits, swim trunks, beach towels over their shoulders, and we're in our uniforms, buttoned up to the collar, dark blue in the sun, mm-hmm. and we we just croaked our way through it. Um, I'm glad we didn't record this because it, it just <laughs> would have said how we were just so beat. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Maybe maybe but, it was more authentic, maybe feeling that way. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it could very I haven't thought of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, uh, but as near as we could tell, nobody at that point had been up there with with any reenacting music. Um Robert was just getting his band started. In fact, some of his musicians came up when we were playing at Chatham. Uh, some of his musicians came up. Uh, they met the, met us at the hotel. I said, yeah, you come in uniform. Please please be in the mm-hmm. audience. Yeah. I'll be happy to acknowledge you and say anything you want about your band. 
Um, mm. We did, and and it, it was uh, we we lined up uh, behind the mansion, and we did a march out. And uh, uh, you you talk about being overcome with emotion, uh, finally getting out here, out east, and uh, the thrill of of marching out uh, in front of Burnside's headquarters. Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's incredible. That's just, yeah, wow. That, that's yeah. I'm sure being in Wisconsin and being able to come out to the the Eastern Theater, you know, I'm sure a lot of emotions just being there in general, and then yeah, being able to be on those sites and and being the first ones there, essentially, yeah, very powerful. That's awesome. Yeah. The only the only other time that we did anything in the East that was uh, significant, and uh, it's worthy to note that uh, we were even covered uh, on CNN. Uh, was 1990. Uh, they staged the grand review in Washington going down Pennsylvania Avenue. It was interesting to note the helicopter shot going over the National Mall, uh, seeing 5,000 armed Union soldiers. <laughs> uh, and, uh, we were the, uh, we were, we were in the middle of the parade. The band was in the middle. The unit that marched after us was the 54th Massachusetts. Oh, very cool. Which, okay. which we, was really, really appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one other brass band there. I want to say it was the 5th Michigan. Oh, okay. And, um, yeah, it was the 5th Michigan. And then there were some fife and drum corps, and, but, but we were it. The day before, we played a one hour concert in front of the Lincoln Memorial, mm-hmm. which I don't think you can do now. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we we did that, and then the next day uh, we stepped off uh, for the grand review, and we lined all the units were were lined up uh, at the end of the parade in a massive square uh, for a trooping of the colors and the dignitaries. Uh, but they had Fashion Day review stand uh, represented were President Johnson, Grant, Sherman, uh, mm-hmm. Secretary of War Stanton. Uh, they were all in that in that review stand, and we made darn sure we played "Marching Through Georgia" in front of that. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. I was wondering if, with the band being stationed in Wisconsin, and I know that we were talking about uh, the changing climate of things in modern America, especially in the last months. <clears throat> I was wondering if you guys have had any pushback or any type of public perception, uh, public perception, you know, not controversies, but anything along those lines, uh, being out in Wisconsin. The, the only, the only thing actually came about 10 years ago, uh, when we played, uh, for a couple of years, we would take a small group up to, uh, the state capitol at Madison. And when the, uh, uh, the state legislature would reconvene, uh, there was a, there's a, a, a ceremony to begin the, the legislature each year. And uh, we played uh, in the upper balcony, a small group of us, uh, each year uh, for this. And uh, Dan Wolpert, uh, is a, he's a, first of all, he's a dear friend. He was, a be- he was the best man when Nancy and I got married. He <laughs> and his wife, uh, they, they are forever uh, enshrined in our hearts and our love. Um, but Dan once in a while would have an historic lapse. Uh, I think that's why he always kept me right, right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I won't say that in any negative way whatsoever. And I don't want oh, that. Of course. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. That, right. It's just the way it was. Um, and he had the band play Dixie. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we when we do Dixie, uh, we do it uh, in the context of Lincoln's request. You guys know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the end of the war, and I hear the band play Dixie. I've always liked it. Yeah, kind uh, of a, the re- the reclaiming of Dixie. Reclaiming of Dixie, yes. And we always set it up that way. We always tell the audience this is what Lincoln asked for. So we've always prepared the groundwork. Mm-hmm. There was no groundwork because he just called up the next number. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fireworks came after that. And uh, the absence of an invitation since then has spoken volumes. It was from the the people that hired you, or it was the audience's response? There was some political blowback from one of the legislators. Gotcha, gotcha. And so it, and it was it wasn't an in the moment audience thing, right? No, 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 no. It, it gotcha. came back later. Gotcha, it, gotcha. No, there was there was no uproar from you know, but Dan and Dan was used to this. It's it's the Dixie that is in the band books of the First Brigade Band. Mm-hmm. And near as we can tell, they used it as a dance reel. Um, lots of union bands seem to have had arrangements of Dixie. Yeah. And uh, uh, so he just did it as a matter of course, and uh, uh, that that's where it happened. Uh, I, I can enlighten you on a future project uh, that's actually on the, on the same line. One of our uh, associate directors, his name is Dwayne Roberson. Mm-hmm. Dwayne high school band director uh, in Watertown, Wisconsin, for for many years. He took retirement uh, four years ago. And last winter, uh, at a family gathering, he discovered that he is a descendant of Elmer Ellsworth. Elmer Ellsworth was a Zouave. Uh, He was a great personal friend of Abraham Lincoln's. Mm -hmm. Uh, He traveled with Lincoln to Washington in 1861. He took charge of a Zouave Company, mm-hmm. and at a hotel in Alexandria in 1861, uh, the the uh, hotel manager was flying an enormous Confederate flag. It was a seven star. Virginia hadn't gone out yet, um, mm-hmm. and it was like the size of the Fort McHenry flag. Yeah. And and Elmer was incensed over this this uh, symbol of 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 hatred for the Union. Mm-hmm. And he was going to personally go pull it down. So he marched his Zouaves across the river to Alexandria. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know where this is going now. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> he went personally to the roof, hauled down the flag. He had a sergeant with him. Um, and halfway down um, the steps, there's this narrow hallway, he was confronted with the innkeeper with a double-barrel shotgun. Well, the sergeant couldn't couldn't there was no room to swing and the sergeant to swing his musket and the guy just instantly leveled a shotgun at Ellsworth who had the, the flag draped over him yeah. and and double barreled him point blank. Yeah. And yeah, he was the, first, the first martyr to sacrifice himself to hauling down an offensive sign. He he, he was mourned by Lincoln uh, tremendously and um uh, for a brief time, he was uh, the cause Salib. He uh, uh, there there were there were memorial songs, there were mo- um, memorial funeral marches. Uh, there was a brief spurt of musical activity that accompanied his his martyrdom, and yeah. 
so Duane being a direct descendant uh, in the Ellsworth family, uh, the bite really got into Duane. He contacted me. We talked about uh, uh, how he would prepare the music and I would write the script. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I found there was only one biography ever written about Ellsworth, and it goes back to 1960. It's an old mm-hmm. Civil War centennial book. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I was getting all set to do it, and I got another email from him, and he just went to town on working the, working the music. And I said, Dwayne, look, clearly this is your baby. Why don't you, you're writing from the heart. Why don't you do the whole thing? I'll help you in any way that I can, but you've got the fire in the belly that I don't have on this. I mean, I'm I'm happy to do anything you want, and, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll I'll write anything you want, but it. Uh, I said, you know, you, gee, you, you really should do this. This is this is yours, and so he's done it, and we're just waiting for a chance to pull the band, read the music, go through the marches and the commemorative songs. And uh, this was all planned before uh, all of the current history had happened. You guys thinking that it will be able to resume? Yeah, I mean, we, we had planned to do this uh, anyway, uh, just because of Dwayne's uh, personal connection to it. Uh, I, You know, your crystal ball is as good as mine as far when it's going to be safe to pull hmm. folks in, into a room and blow on wind instruments. Yeah. Uh, sure. Right now we're we're playing it very low and not taking any chances with people. Definitely. Uh, I, I hope next year can reemerge uh, and just sort of sort of get in front of audiences and say, "Well, before I was rudely interrupted." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. That was one of one of my little. Uh, <laughs> everybody's got a little stump speech in their life uh, where uh. they. Get up, get up and hoist their, their little banner and, uh, speak into the microphone to almost no one and, uh, uh, present their cause salib, shall we say. <laughs> My, mine is, is always been, um, the American school band director is not through their fault, absolutely not through their fault, is totally unaware of their own history. They're, they're not aware of the heritage of what they're standing in front of. Mm-hmm. Um, and a baseball coach knows all about Cooperstown. Um, the different sports know where their Hall of Fame is. They know their Giants. Um, you talk to a handful of uh, band directors uh, that deal in our in our corner of the world, and if you say Francis Maria Scala, they know what you're talking about. If they if you say Claudio Grafulla, they they get it. Uh, mm-hmm. If they if you even say Ned Kendall, uh, mm-hmm. they may get it. But mm-hmm. uh, you talk to a high school band director, and uh, they don't. And like I say, it's not their fault. Um, it's it's just that we have we in the musical community um, we've shouldered this on ourselves. Uh, I don't know of. Uh, a higher learning institution in music in this country that has a survey course on the history of the American wind ensemble. Mm-hmm. Uh, we teach our musicians plenty of Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. Uh, you're raised in a symphony culture, and then you're pushed out the door to go teach a wind ensemble, teach a band. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Bach, Brahms, and Beethoven absolutely 
time and forever should be, uh, and always will be, a, a part of it. But, uh, who was Edwin Franco Goldman? Uh, mm-hmm. who was, uh, Patrick Gilmore? Um, you know, you, you, it, um, most, again, most of these, uh, uh, educators are, are, are clueless and I stress not their fault. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure where there is a fault. I think it's just something that, uh, Probably we all can shoulder individually and go forth with uh, with whatever tools we can to to try and to try and bring uh, our fellow educators up to up to speed on what they're standing in front of and what what the history of this is. So, yeah. and, and with your your you know say, saying the exact same things that Stephen and I uh, have been echoing the whole time we've been doing this show. Also, we we totally agree. What in, in your experience do you think? Is the way forward? How do we loop in the uh, the public school band director and and get this history kind of learned uh, on some type of larger scale? Well, I think your podcasts are taking a huge step forward. Clearly, um, it's like the podcasts, uh, or the, not not the podcasts, but the online casts uh, that I've watched in the last couple of years on interpretation of Susa marches, mm-hmm. uh, which I think have been really really terrific. I think we do it um, at at local music conventions, at uh, conferences. Um, I'm a member of Phi Beta Mu, the professional bandmasters mm-hmm. fraternity, um, and Wisconsin Bandmasters. And uh, First Brigade Band was proud to host a um, a meeting of the Wisconsin Bandmasters about uh, twelve, I think it was twelve or fourteen years ago, mm-hmm. and. Um, we did it up big. We not only had a concert, we, we put on a Civil War style show. Uh, we had uh, ladies with all kinds of different dresses. Uh, we talked about social norms at the time, uh, brought out uh, the social music. Uh, we, we tried to educate them in, in the, uh, the period which this music lives in, uh, that it's not just a vacuum of nice new emerging band music, but where this is all fitting together. Um, present this, um, and I just think that's that's something that start at the ground level, um, preach what you can, show what you can. Um, we at the state Wisconsin State uh, Music Convention every year we set up a couple of display tables with uh, several of our key instruments and uh, set up a laptop running videos of of the band and and showing. Mm-hmm. And having sample recordings, of course, um, showing what, what can be done. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, uh, it's something that, uh, we've been, uh, proud to address in the last few years. About five years ago, we entered into partnership with Hal Leonard Music Publishing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, our bandmaster emeritus, Dan Wolpert, uh, has taken the music of the original First Brigade band, uh, about a, oh, half a dozen selections. And has rescored them for modern band. Uh, I would say at a technical level, they're what we would call in Wisconsin a class B level of difficulty, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, you guys know the, you, you know the quick step game. Um, it's, it's fairly high, but it's not, it's not, uh, impossible for, for most competent, uh, high school and community to, to deal with. But it's bringing, this is, this is, for us, particularly in Wisconsin, this is Wisconsin band music, uh, 
from, mm-hmm. from this tremendous historical period. And uh, it's done very well here in Wisconsin, uh, uh, the arrangement from the 1st Brigade Band books of Battle Cry of Freedom um, uh, has done extremely well, as as has some of the other uh, selections that are not what you would call, quote, Civil War, mm-hmm. uh, like Captain Blood's Quick Step. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, it points students and, and the educators in the right direction. Uh, this, this is where you come from. Uh, I also uh, have my entire professional life been directing some kind of a, a city or community band. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my players, uh, the, one of the, uh, the community band that I'm currently directing, uh, directed for 25 years now, is uh, from Palmyra, Wisconsin. And a trombone player um, of mine teaches in a nearby community called Waterloo, Wisconsin. And last year she invited me to come and uh, talk to uh, her history class and the, uh, the school band. At that time, we were looking at uh, the anniversary of the First World War. And she came to me and she said, Ed, can you put something together about music of the First World War? And I said, fine, we can do that. We can bring antique instruments. And uh, it went very, very well. Uh, we were immediately, before we could get the horns back in the car, we were invited back for this year. <laughs> and I got some of my fellow geezer retires <laughs> to come along. We put together a, a nice little ensemble, invited the high school director to, to play, and we played several World War One tunes. Mm-hmm. But we brought instruments from pre-Civil War. Uh, uh, we, we took everything from... Um, um, uh, a late 1700, early 1800s clarinet to a uh, keyed bugle, um, to a Schreiber, uh, tuba, to, uh, several over the shoulder horns, to, uh, post-war, uh, instruments. I had a 1905 Helicon tuba E flat, um, and we just, we covered three tables with, with band instruments. Uh, this was before the pandemic obviously hit. This was in February. And we took several buckets of mouthpiece spray, and we had this whole high school band. We did this presentation on music and brought the whole high school band down. And these kids are fascinated. I had no idea instruments looked like that. You mean, you really, this is an alto horn? What's, what's the deal here? Um, and it was a, a real cacophony. Had you walked in just addressed the sound, you would have thought things were in chaos, but they were wonderful. Uh, and I've never been hit with so many wonderful questions. Uh, and we could have gone into half the night. Uh, it was, it was just a tremendously rewarding experience for all of us, but it was, it was, it was, it was just terrific. That's why I say I, I think we all, we all just look for venues and, and look for openings and dig in and, and, uh, See if we can sign up more apostles. <laughs> so where where online could people go if they were looking to find out more uh, about anything that you've mentioned uh, in the interview so far? Uh, I guess just basically at this point, uh, just contact our website, 1ST, don't write the word first, 1STBrigadeBand.org. Uh, yeah, the other thing is uh, check Facebook for our stuff too. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. That definitely, cool. because, uh, that that's going to give you uh, additional depth and and videos uh, of performances, balls that we have done, parades. 
uh, all I can say in closing is please, gentlemen, keep up the good work. Uh, it, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. It means Thank a lot. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ed, for coming on the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We really enjoyed uh, that interview, and we hope you did as well. All the links for everything we have mentioned in the episode are going to be up in our show notes, so you can just go to our website. That's eabbpodcast.com. Click on show notes, and everything will pop up. That way, if you're interested in anything we mentioned during the episode, uh, that's a nice, easy, convenient way to find all the links uh, right there on our website along with some other resources. So go check it out. That's eabbpodcast.com. And a nice thing for this particular episode is that Ed was nice enough to supply us with a number of, uh, I don't want to say exclusive pictures, but I haven't seen them anywhere else online. So probably exclusive to, to the public online. A lot of really cool pictures from the First Brigade Band, and especially a number of really cool pictures of the collection uh, of their instruments that they were telling us about. So go over to the show notes and we will have those pictures for you to peruse there. This episode's featured album is by the First Brigade Band. This is volume 12. The album is titled Concert Favorites. This is when the band was under the direction of Dan Wolpert and this album consists of tracks that are entirely suggested by audiences and it's kind of the fan favorites of the First Brigade Band all in one place for you in Volume 12. This CD is available for purchase on the First Brigade Band's website, so make sure you head over there. There will be a link for the album and the First Brigade Band's website on our show notes. Thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.